1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with uh, my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, and it's Valentine's Day. So welcome to everybody here on Valentine's Day. Uh, You you might think that on the surface, Valentine's Day is uh, kind of a, a shallow day where people just send flowers and cards and chocolates and go out to dinner. But it's all about celebrating uh, love, and that's at the center of this uh, holiday, a very deep and complex emotion. So today on Noon Edition, we're going to look at the science of love and how our brains work when we're in relationships, what we want in a mate, and how the dating experience is changing. And we have two great guests with us in the studio today. Michael Reese is a professor and associate dean at the IU School of Public Health. His research focuses on sexuality and sexual health. And Justin Garcia is at the Kinsey Institute, and he's a science scientific advisor for Match.com. He recently conducted the annual Match.com Singles in America study that looks at the dating behaviors of singles. So if you have questions or comments and you want to join us on the program, please phone 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join us uh, on a live chat. WFIU.org slash noonedition. You can follow us on Twitter at noonedition. So, welcome, everybody. Thank you. And happy Valentine's. Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Catherine brought in cupcakes today for about. Speaking of shallow, we brought in food. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way we are. So, I want to turn to to Justin first uh, and this new study that you've just completed. I mean, were there, are there, can you give us like one or two takeaways from the study, things that you didn't expect to learn? Uh, I know it's a big, long study. So
2: yeah. So the the back the, the I'll start with the backstory of the story, uh, the study why we did it in the first place. And it, it turns out in the U.S. today, there's over 111 million single Americans, <clears throat> unmarried Americans, and uh, we don't know of any other society in the anthropological literature that there's so many unmarried single adults. They're moving in and out of relationships. So to understand who these people are and how they're contributing to U.S. society in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting was how much people spend on dating, and what we found is that it was uh, over $80 billion a year. Singles are contributing to the U.S. economy based on uh, various dating behaviors and uh, going out on dates and online Mm -hmm. profiles. Uh, so I think that was one of the interesting findings. Um, well, and, I, I have to ask you, so how that compare to married people? Do they still go out on dates? And stuff? Uh, yeah, they do, certainly. <laughs> and, um, and, in fact, in some of the studies on uh, long-term relationship uh, satisfaction and uh, couples that do still do things like go on dates and take vacations, it's uh, a good predictor of long-term relationship satisfaction. Okay. Mm, interesting. Uh, all
0: right. uh, as I was looking down through this, I found it very interesting that uh, first dates are more serious than they appear.
2: Uh, yeah, because you get a lot of information from someone on a first date. You could really they're, – uh, they're helpful uh, to really understand who, who is this person that I may potentially get serious with. Uh, you learn um, – as a biologist, if I put on my bio- biological hat – I'm interested in things like what the what the unspoken cues are that you get about their body language, about their smell, about their dress. Um, but you uh, can really get a lot of information um, from people. And people make a lot of assessments early on in a relationship. Very quickly, they want to know, is this someone that's worth my time? Our time is all valuable. Yeah. And how do I want to spend it?
0: Now, I always heard you have to give somebody uh, that seems appropriate in all ways, except you don't feel like an instant attraction to them you should give them three dates is that anybody know anything about that give them a chance give them three dates
2: Uh, one of the things we found was um uh particularly about when relationships change is that there is somewhat of a sex difference and women tend to focus more on uh, um, milestones in the relationship so for instance if we ask when would you first become sexual in a relationship Uh, women tend to say things like well when there's a sense of commitment and men tend to count and they say well by the second date or the fifth date or the sixth date so there's sort of a different uh, patterns Um, it's
0: a fisher cut bait for men yeah okay all right
2: (laughs) but 50 percent of singles in our study uh, said that on their first date they decided they were sizing up whether or not they could imagine having a future with that person so we're making those decisions pretty early on before we really know that much about someone Mm -hmm. now uh,
1: michael you're involved with uh, sexuality and sexual health research and i know you're connected to the kinsey institute too what's your connection there Um, Our team at the Center for Sexual
3: Health Promotion has had overlap with uh, faculty and staff at the Kinsey Institute uh, for over a decade. Um, We have a multidisciplinary team in the School of Public Health, includes the Kinsey Institute, the School of Medicine, telecommunications. Uh, It's a pretty broad, diverse team.
1: So I know this is a big, broad question, but the, the whole issue today of Valentine's Day and love, I mean, can you sort of connect the sexual health and love elements in any kind of succinct way?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, our team's um, mission in our Center for Sexual Health Promotion has been to try to collect data that has some real validity in American society. Um, There are lots of policies. There are lots of legislative actions, just like ones we've been dealing with in Indiana. We spend millions and millions of dollars a year on public health programs and social welfare programs. Because people largely find themselves in situations where sex can lead to negative consequences. And unfortunately, I think we, as a society, find ourselves in a situation where sex is only thought of in the negative. So, you know, Valentine's Day is a great day, actually, because it allows us who focus on everything that sort of gets us into trouble to take a step (laughs) back and say, well, you know, there's actually a lot of good stuff about sex. Mm -hmm. Um, My team is focused on trying to do nationally representative population-based work. We've all heard of the work of Alfred Kinsey when he did those studies. Those were just the first large-scale studies of sexual behavior, but they weren't nationally representative. The only one, the second one happened in 1992. Um, And that was really the first ever nationally representative study of sexual behavior in the United States, if you can believe it, 1992. But you'd probably be more shocked to know that we went from 1992 until about 2009 and 2010 before another one was ever conducted. So much of uh, the popular literature, much of our policy making, much of everything we've done in this society around sexual behavior has been based on data that was collected even prior to the internet uh, became popular. So our team has been really focused on trying to fill that gap, and we, we certainly incorporate love and relationships into that when we do that work.
1: Do you think it's still the the, the case that – I mean people will talk about love, and, and but they're, they're still afraid to talk about sex. I mean it went for 17 years, if you said from 1992 to 2009 – for uh, real research data, is that people are still like, okay, I'm just going to keep this private and whatever I do, I do. I I don't know. I'd be interested in Justin's perception. I I
3: think there are two things. I think um, we often try to separate love and sex, and I don't think it's as separate as we think it is. Um, And I think that... um, we 've refined our you know academicians like justin and i we 've defined the methodologies for studying sex. Love is a whole nother ball game. Mm-hmm. you know what it means psychologically or physiologically, how you measure it how you assess it and I quite frankly in our studies i don 't know about justin 's I think we are at a point in contemporary society where if you do it right, you can get people to talk to you about most anything in their life. I often tell my students, I think people are more sensitive about telling you what they ate for lunch than what they did at home in the bedroom the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but love is something – I don't know, Justin, what you think. I, love is an odd concept for us to measure.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think I think the studies that Michael's done and his group has done in understanding sexual those parts of sexual behavior and sexuality have really been important for the whole field in really understanding where do we go? How do we how do we ask these questions? But abs- I totally agree. When we think about love, so psychologists have some loose definitions, So there's and there's components of love. One way is that we can think about there's an attachment mechanism, a bonding mechanism, there's an attraction. Uh, so you can imagine walking into a bar and seeing a bunch of people you're attracted to, but how, do, how is it that we focus in on one? Mm-hmm. Um, and then developing that romantic att- uh, attraction for one person. So psychologists tend to define this as focused attention, intrusive thought, obsessive thinking. So there's some lists. Um, it's, it actually, if you, if you were to describe something else the same way it sounds a lot like an addiction um, and uh, th- there are actually some interesting questions about that about what happens in the brain and when people break up back from breakup stories sounds a lot like um, people going through withdrawal mm-hmm. and uh, but it is it's it's almost a, it's sort of a tough term and, and for academics it's been really tough to define it to make sense of it what are you asking when you ask people how do we separate romantic from maternal love mm-hmm. um, so how do we think of it differently in our own lives, but then also how do we think of it differently in research? And how are the mechanisms different? There is something unique about romantic love, usually because it's also connected to the sexual motivation.
0: Um, And you didn't use this word specifically, but traditionally we've talked about having chemistry with somebody, that you just click and you just kind of... No.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, or the, you know, as you in your bar scenario, mm-hmm. the, you know, you're in the bar and there's sure there are, might be a group of attractive people, but for some reason you do seem to just be particularly attracted to one of those people. Is that something that is being studied sci- scientifically? This kind con- I'm wondering if it's connected to pheromones or hormones or something like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a few studies. One of them is looking at the um, the Fisher Temperament Inventory. So Helen Fisher, a colleague of mine, mm-hmm. developed a personality measure that tries to understand how do different people interact with each other, and she's been working with chemistry.com, a subsidiary of match.com to try and understand how it is that you're attracted to one person over another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's other components that uh, we know a little bit about. People have been put into fMRIs and had their brain scan when they're in love, and what happens? What we see is that the dopamine system is really involved, and dopamine is uh, uh, involved in our pleasure circuits in our brains. So it's so love, romantic love, that uh, that obsessive thought, that intrusive thinking, although it might be uh, difficult to live with, but it can also be uh, exciting and fun, and that's that's actually what characterizes love. And if you describe, if people describe when they're in romantic love, uh, if you put it in another context, you might say, "Oh my gosh, I'm having a panic attack." But, <laughs> but in the context of love, you're in the you're in the throes of passion and romance. Um, but physiologically, it looks like that's what happens. You get a, you get a drop in serotonin. You get an increase in the dopaminergic function, mostly through the a little pea-sized part of the middle of the brain called the VTA. Um, so what happens to us physiologically, there is chemistry. There's lots of chemistry that's going on. Um, and that's just in the passionate part. That's not even – we haven't got to the sexual part yet. It's its own <laughs> physiological story. Now, I might say
1: I, when I was doing a little bit of research before the show, there, there was a study that, that I read about Stephanie Ortegu, I think mm-hmm. her name is from Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is, this, is about, this is a very romantic paragraph. It says that, that uh, the brain work, uh, areas of the brain work in tandem to release euphoria-inducing chemicals such as dopamine, oxytocin, adrenaline, and vasopression. The love feeling also affects sophisticated cognitive functions such as mental representation, metaphors, and body image. So, I mean, it's been studied. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. But it still comes down to that. I mean, there are these things that, that you just – I guess you just know.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the interesting and I think uh, uh, one of the things that Michael would, would would make me really think critically about is how we can think about the interaction of biology and culture in a particular mm-hmm. cultural, social, cultural context. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we know if we look cross-culturally, uh, almost every society, every society in the anthropological literature has stories of love. People do things for love. They create things for love. They live, they die for love. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, for a while, people started to think, well, maybe this is just a Western notion. Maybe this is just we have this really great idea of romantic love. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we see it all over the world. But it operates a lot differently in different spaces. And what are, what are the rules about uh, finding a relationship? Some cultures segregate children at puberty because they don't want them falling in love on their own. The parents want to mm-hmm. dictate who they fall in love with. So there's all these cultural rules about, um, about how that physiology manifests itself. Yeah, And,
3: and I, I think we have in this culture in particular um, made a lot of erroneous assumptions that they're in fact distinct and that they mm-hmm. don't go together. And mm-hmm. there's increasing amounts of data to suggest that a lot of sex happens between people who actually identify themselves as being in love with each other, mm-hmm. uh, and I think some of the artifacts of the way we've sort of broken sex down into being either a positive or a negative experience, either leading to pregnancy or a disease or not, has made us remove away from that. We just um, published a, a new study about men who are having sex with men. You know, one of the foundations of a lot of the political arguments around same-sex marriage has been, well, are these truly loving relationships? And you know, in this study. Of over twenty-five thousand men, we found that ninety-two percent of them said the person they had sex with most recently they were in love with, and that person was in love with them. And you know, culturally, these uh, same-sex relationships look almost identical to heterosexual relationships around this context of love. But I, I think we've gotten very jaded in our society mm-hmm. that we've we've really separated sex and love, and we we only allow love to be sort of part of the conversation around these kind of heart-shaped boxes of candy, <laughs> often, right? I I think we've gotten really jaded about it. Yeah.
0: Justin, to go back to a point you were making, I remember, and this has really stuck with me, um, my 90-year-old father was in the Air Force in World War II, and he told me that, um, and God love him, he suffered through raising five children um, (laughs) with my mother, but he told me that, um, so he saw a lot of broken hearts over the years is my point, but he said that um, in the Air Force, if you were in love, you were considered to be almost unfit for duty, um, that they considered you to be kind of crazy at that time, and they really—I mean, there were there were actually things in place because people did crazy stuff, you know, steal airplanes to go see their loved one or whatever. And so they actually took special care with people who were considered to be "quote unquote" in love.
2: Yeah, and it's and part of it's uh, I think associated with what happens in our neurologically what happens to the brain when you're when you're in love. And if we think about the context of um, if you are uh, sexually and if you're having a sexual relationship with someone and I and I. I'm going to momentarily think about them as separate. For, um, if we're having just a sexual relationship with someone and or you go into a bar and try and pick someone up and they say no, okay, but we know when people are rejected in love. Um, that it drives people to seemingly irrational behavior. Mm. But if we think about romantic love as having evolved over millions of years to direct human survival and reproduction, well, then these aren't really that irrational of decisions. These are really important relationships. Um, And, in fact, I would argue, and a lot of my colleagues, Helen Fisher and others have argued, that these relationships do in many ways define the human condition. It's the context with which... And back to Michael's point, we know that uh, most human sexual behavior, human sexuality broadly, occurs in the context of long-term relationships. Um, what we what i might call long term socio sexual pair bonds <laughs> but but these Well, long-term, that is touching
0: yeah. Yeah, i be sure to use that <laughs> phrase a lot cuz that really i get a little weepy when i hear you say that
2: Justin. <laughs> but uh, yeah so it's uh, but they're important for people and it's, uh, and I, and i say reproduction as these sort of obvious contexts but also survival uh, humans are what biologists call cooperative breeders um, and again again i'm oh, I I sorry with the term. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this idea that it takes a family to raise a child and a village to raise a family. Mm-hmm. Um, we're social beings. We have these social contexts. Um, so there is a lot of overlap. And I think exactly as Michael said it's a really important point we have to think about. How are these, how are they overlapping? And, and it's fact, it's bidirectional. Some other data we have is that um, when you're in love, you're probably having sex with a person. And there's some evidence to suggest when you're having sex, you can fall in love. In our singles data, mm-hmm. about a third of people have had casual sex or, um, well, the term is a one-night stand or a friends-with-benefits relationship and had those turn into a romantic relationship. So, there are all sorts of movies about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, if we look at in 2011, there were two popular movies: "Friends with Benefits," "No Strings Attached." And in both cases, mm-hmm. the actors uh, struggle with their with romance, and uh, a biological reason could be it, it actually primes it primes the brain. Um, you have the what happens when you have sex is the sort of uh, increase in the catecholamines and dopamine function. You actually might be priming the brain to fall in love. All mm-hmm. right, I want uh, want to give our our listeners our phone numbers. again. My if mother
0: somewhere to, going, "Don't uh, you uh, believe <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you want to join us, uh, please give us a call. You can share your dating woes. You can share your struggles, your triumphs. You can share whatever you want to share about love uh, on our program. Uh, we're talking with uh, two two guests today, Michael Reese and Justin Garcia. You can call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 877-285-9348. You can also join us on the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Michael, you talked about the, the – society kind of distancing love and sex and its discussion, so obviously you're a proponent of Valentine's Day. Do you think we need to, as a society, talk and focus more on the concept of love, just for the beauty and great step love does for us.
3: You know, I personally find it to be a really hard question because love has somehow can at times I think be seen um, by some people as almost a moralistic um, type of construct that people think of love as having moral value and sex as being a purely sort of animalistic driven type behavior. Hmm. So there's a part of me that says, yes, um, but because I have seen the concept of love so abused um, for political or religious. Or other reasons, that I'm hesitant to say they always have to be there. Um, I think it, I think Justin's point is really important that they are bidirectional and that they they can go both ways. Um, but I, you know, but I'm at heart a sex researcher and still believe that we need just to understand what people do sexually. And it gets really it gets confusing. It gets complicated for us as researchers. It creates challenges in terms of the types of funding we can get. Um, It creates challenges in terms of the acceptability or the ability to disseminate this research in the public media. Um, So I I believe love is a really important concept, and I believe uh, with all of the studies that are going on, many of them right here at IU— there's um, growing evidence that love is more important than we may have thought it was. Um, but I'm not sure that the public um, kind of making and sort of moralistic judgment sphere of our world is ready to accept that yet. Um I th- I think there's some I think there's some strength in the division that's of That's
0: counterintuitive that. to me. I mean, I would think that would be the the aspect that would be championed because that's I don't know, for me traditional I mean love that that has just um no matter who's engaging in loving each other, uh I mean that just has an inherently wholesome uh yeah.
3: con- I, I, think I think you're right. But my point is that I think that sex has sex. And when, when it's about policymakers and it's about trying to monitor people's lives, sex is never questioned as long as it meets that condition that people want to know that you're in love. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge is that we know that sex occurs outside of love and we know that love occurs outside of sex. Um, and so uh, I, I think it only becomes a problem if there's an expectation that sex is only allowed within the context of love. And you can see that, that sort of judgmental notion of that making its way into much public policy. If you look at the entire abstinence-based education philosophies of this country for a long time, it was based around the fact that as soon as you get married, everything changes and you're in love and you can have sex with each other. Um, so so it 's just a misguided um, it 's a misguided aspect of public policy i think is where it gets
1: into trouble. Uh, creates problems for us as a society okay i have to believe that our listeners uh, have comments and questions <laughs> about this topic today so hopefully uh you'll give us a call in the second half of the program uh share your uh your thoughts about love and about uh, sex uh to a point and we'll talk to you uh, on the air in the second half of the program if you call 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 wfiu.org slash noon edition is the website we'll be right back Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from The Herald-Times along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about uh, Valentine's Day and love and sex and sexuality. And we have two guests with us in the studio. Michael Reese is a professor— and Associate Dean at the IU School of Public Health. His research focuses on sexuality and sexual health. And Justin Garcia is a researcher at the Kinsey Institute and the scientific advisor for Match.com. He recently conducted the annual Match.com Singles in America study that looks at the dating behaviors of singles. If you wanna join us, please phone 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiuorg Edition. a lot of things we want to talk about in the second half of the program. One thing I just I just wanted to sort of get this off my chest. I know Justin used the word obsession at one point when he's talking about the the release of dopamines and everything on lo- feeling in love. There's sort of an obsession there, and it seems to me that, that can really lead to some negative consequences if uh, the the obsession isn't reciprocated. And we see that all the time. It becomes domestic violence. It becomes, you know, a lot of things that
2: society has to deal with. And I just sort of wanted to throw that, put that on the table and see what kind of comments you guys have. About that. Yeah, and one and some of the studies on breakups and when relationships end, we know that, um, particularly among youth, among sort of young adults, that a vast majority when relationships end, one partner stalks the other. And stalking is a sort of a wide range of what stalking behavior can be. And, what, and sometimes it can be, I think with our students today, it might be things like, well, I keep checking their Facebook and I Check their friends Facebook, and um, there are different ways that so you might drive by their house, but we actually those numbers are relatively high, and part mm-hmm. of that is because people often have a hard time. Um, sometimes establishing the re- relationship but also ending it mm-hmm. um, and moving on from that. And that's all part of that. In a study where they put people who had uh, been uh, recently rejected in love and put them in the brain, their brains look remarkably like uh, someone going through cocaine withdrawal. Yeah. No uh, kidding. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and it was uh, shocking how remarkably like, uh, because you still have, a speci- a speci- uh, specifically if you were rejected in love, you still have all those cravings. You still want mm-hmm. the p- partner. And sometimes even when a relationships end, um, you might desire them, but you, you we end relationships for all sorts of reasons. Maybe you're too far away, maybe there's a problem, but it doesn't mean you stop having those feelings, those mm-hmm. cravings, those desires. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned that that is found most commonly in younger people uh, who are in, at the end of a loving or love relationship. Uh, how else is it different for adolescents? How is love different from adolescents? Is it more intense? I mean, looking back, it seems like everything was more intense as a, as a young person.
3: Yeah, I think the, the notion of, of, of um, adolescents falling in love on a day-to-day one day and breaking up the next is just part of our the human experience. Um, you know, we've been collecting a lot of data about adolescents, and, and my team would probably say to you that most of the assumptions we make about adolescent sex are just way off base. Um, They, you know, the one thing is that they are an incredibly resilient generation. Um, Particularly if you take, for example, if, if you want to know who the highest rate of condom users in this country are, they're kids under the age of 18. Um, and at about 18, those condom use rates drop, drop by half. And then once they get in relationships, they drop by about another half. And w- my team finds that particularly interesting if you think about that that generation of adolescents was mostly subjected, not in Monroe County, um, but in most areas of the country, that generation of adolescents never was taught anything about sex or relationships or how to protect themselves and sexual health. So we, so the first thing we would say is we've, we're a little off base and we think of younger uh, adults as being irresponsible, as being unable to manage their relationships, when in fact, they're way more responsible than their parents ever were and that their parents are today. Um, And that's important for us to know and to reinforce young adults Mm -hmm. for that rather than to always see them as sort of risky individuals. We know that their um, sexual repertoires actually look much like those of adults. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not having nearly as much sex as people think they are. Um, and they're participating in a range of behaviors that often are not necessarily compromising their health in ways that we think they that they might be. Um, so we, we focus a lot on adolescents, really, in trying to get out a message that they're a particularly resilient population. They're acting responsibly. They will tell you that they have a lot of hope for the future in terms of their economic success, in terms of ch- children, in terms of marriage. Um, and we probably all, as a society, should give them a little more credit for for being as Uh resilient in some of the things they've been through as they are.
0: Is there any evidence that the uh, feelings of love or the opposite, the feelings of rejection, are actually stronger in adolescence, or is it just a lack of experience that, you know, as you get older, perhaps you get a little tougher?
2: Uh, so we know that there's certainly uh, individual cases of people having a, uh, experiencing love early on, and in fact, often before puberty. So, which is from a from a scientific perspective, is sort of interesting in terms of what what those biological changes are that happen at the Yeah, pu- because you hear about transition. people who
0: have been in, they say, you know, we met in third grade and we've never been apart. So, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, and it can, it can form really early on. Uh, in our national study, we asked people, well, how old were you the first time you fell in love? And the, uh, about 74% of people said they were between the ages of 11 and 20. So, a vast majority are actually saying this sort of age group of uh, uh, adolescents and young adulthood. So people are feeling those, and they can be often before uh, you even know what they mean. Uh, they tend to, as we get a little bit older, they become more tied to sexuality. They also become more tied to sort of conceptualizing what does that mean. Uh, you know, if, yeah. you're, if you, do you go on a date with the person or not? My um, my oh, yeah. niece would kill me if she heard this, but uh, I remember, you know, she went on a date. and They are little, and I was what does that even mean to go on a date? What do you do? You know, like, <laughs> like hang out in the den of your parents' house. Yeah. So those those, those whole, all those behaviors and those interactions change as we as we age. And I think on the other side of the spectrum, it's also uh, important to note that people keep dating and keep having sex late through into the life course, and in fact, the fastest growing online dating site in America is our time for people 50 and over. Um, so people are, in, uh, people are still dating and having sex and, um, throughout the life course, from, from younger ages younger than we thought to ages older than we thought.
0: So is it true that uh, some people say, well, you know, as you age, love changes? Does it change chemically
2: in the brain? And one of the things that can change is that we often, uh, in a long-term romantic relationship, we start to transition from the, that extreme obsessive uh, passionate love to a more companionate type of love. And then different love, and again, this gets back to Michael's point about how do, what do we even talk about when we use this term, love. Mm-hmm. Different scholars have broken up um, the concept of love differently. Some define it as a system of three motivations, attraction, attachment. And uh, sex drive and others uh, describe passionate love and companionate love dichotomously Mm -hmm. and with overlap. And we see that uh, in relationships, particularly around the two to three year mark, you start to transition a little bit more into companionate love. Um, The obsessive thinking starts to um, uh, slow down (laughs) a little bit. But couples that are together a long time and report high rates of romantic satisfaction and being in love often do things where they still feel those, that passion. Yeah, and, and we've found in some data that this, this is an interesting finding. We
3: still haven't teased it all out. But if you, if you look at older women, and um, we're talking women over 70 years of age. Um, and you ask them about a recent sexual experience. If you look at those women reporting those behaviors, and, and Justin's absolutely right, we're, we're sexual beings from the minute we're born until the minute we die. And sexual <laughs> expression, it has its ups and downs as we age, but it's, all, it's still all there. Um, we've been fascinated by the fact that older women will report consistently in our data that if they're having sex with someone who has not been their relationship partner, that it, they just call it way better. <laughs> uh, um, now you know we don 't really understand. you know we don 't know that for sure we don 't know if it 's that you just you know wanted to check out new merchandise after fifty sixty years of marriage if it has perhaps on a more serious note to be related to the loss of a partner mm-hmm. um, but it is an, it is an interesting um, Thing in our society that we will we will allow older people to and often expect them to have expressions of love, but we know very little and talk to them very little about, and almost stigmatize the fact that older Americans or older adults would still be sexually active. And um, I think there's been if there's been any real progressive movement in the field of sexuality in the last few years, it has been this renewed acknowledgement um, of what older American sexuality look like looks like and just how important it is for us to understand it more
0: well and viagra has made it uh, more possible <laughs> Absolutely. frankly
3: yeah.
1: yeah all right if you want to join the program we're having a very upbeat conversation about <laughs> love and sexuality today I,
0: everybody's yeah. too chicken to call in we haven't i had know anybody. i know
1: but we're, we're we're gonna be we're gonna be talking they might keep us on for a long time today <laughs> <laughs> you can share your dating woes you can talk about your your uh, your the good news about your your love life uh, as it were you can call us at 855-0811 in bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the bloomington calling area you can also join the web, join us on the website wfiu.org dot slash noon edition. I just wanted to reference uh, there was a story in USA Today earlier this week about some research done at the University of Louisville, and it was about this very topic that we're talking about, where they're looking at uh, romantic and compassionate love as two different things, and how love sort of changes and how it ebbs and flows. It was it was interesting, and, and they they were sort of uh, you know asking you know what's it. What's it mean to say you love another person because it means so many different things, and I was thinking about that word. I mean you know it's kind of a joke where guys will say, "I love you, man, you know yeah. but it's it's like people are too embarrassed to tell people that they love each other. It's not the mm-hmm. same as maybe you know the Valentine's Day kind of love, but the the, the whole word has sort of changed over time. Yeah. yeah I think you're I think
3: you're absolutely right I mean there's a you know scientists are interesting people because we always try to uh, deconstruct and compartmentalize every aspect of <laughs> everything but I think you're right I think it just gets down to the the end of the day that love is a scary thing right like you we're sort of taught from the time we're born that it'll it'll happen when you know it and that it will be sort of mr. Wright or mrs. Wright uh, and often it's mr. or mrs. right now and there can be some aspects of love and and that can be temporary or it can be permanent but I think you You make a really good point that you know, you know, love is a really scary word to a lot of people, and it. And I think that um, it's been facilitated some by it's. Love has been so closely associated with the concept of marriage, and that that's what happens when
1: you fall in love. That it feels way more permanent than it actually might be.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm. All right, we have a couple of phone calls that uh, Claire is taking now for us, so. We're going to try to get to the first one. Uh, It's Nancy on the phone. Can we get to Nancy? Hello. Hi, Nancy. Go ahead.
4: Um, There was an interesting op-ed piece yesterday about older sexuality, and the comments were really very hostile, which kind of surprised me. I think the thing that I wonder is how important is sexuality, uh, say, from 65 to 85 to emotional and physical health?
3: Well, um... I think it's a great question Nancy. I'm not sure we actually um know as much about it as we would like to or we should. I can tell you this. I can tell you that when you look at older adults um our data go well up into the mid 90s, um you do find high rates of sexual uh, you find common rates of sexual behavior. You find um sexual expression in all forms. Uh sometimes uh you find um also in that that people rate those as pleasurable and important experiences in their life. Um, I agree with you that sometimes our society and sometimes the way people write about these things can be very hostile. It's almost as if we're sort of find it offensive to talk about um, the sex of of older Americans. And the unfortunate part of that is that plays out throughout all types of social systems. It means that physicians and medical providers aren't asking the questions they need to be asking. They're not providing a space for people to ask about issues associated with lubrication um, or issues associated with pain or other types of sexual function. Um, So I'm glad you mentioned and I'm glad you described it as hostile because I think that's the way we treat um, sexuality of older Americans in particular in this culture, and um, I, the, I think the sexual expression they uh, participate in and they experience and their feelings of it uh, haven't ne- don't necessarily change that much over time.
2: Yeah, and I, and I uh, to echo that, and also add that we we also see um, increasing rates of uh, sexually mm-hmm. transmitted infections in older mm-hmm. Americans, mm-hmm. and part of that I think is exactly what Michael's saying: we're not really having honest conversations about people having sex throughout the life course, including mm-hmm. and, and later in the life course. Uh, so that creates all sorts of barriers to, to really having adequate sexual health. Mm. Um, and if we're not asking people, and what's interesting is that when you look at sexual function with men with age, just sort of back to your comment about Viagra, is that with men with age, we actually see some minor declines in sexual function, although we often have pharmaceuticals now that can help people with that. With women, we actually see um, sometimes some issues with pain as they age. But we don't see big drops in sexual um, de pleasure and satisfaction and orgasm with age. So actually, there's a, a slight increase in orgasm with women and age is the, the relationship. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and surprisingly, from a, as a biologist, I'm surprised that when you look at that data, you don't see a big drop off at the menopausal transition, which one might think. All these things happen hormonally. Uh, people are still sexual. Uh, men, both men and women throughout their life. They find ways to be <laughs> sexual. All right. Uh, our f- phone uh, number. Uh, oh, I go mean, ahead. Yeah, sure. Uh, Nancy, go one, ahead.
4: One quick comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that struck me is that a long time ago, we separated procreation uh, from sex, and it seems like that's part of the issue with older people. I mean, when people are living to be 95, uh, to expect them to stop having sex at 65 is like asking them a third of their adult life to not be sexually active.
2: It's a great point. And
4: it's strange. Anyway, that's it.
3: Thank you.
2: All right, Nancy. Thanks a lot for the call. And there are some cultures, actually, where where when people are post-reproductive that sex is is thought to – it should end. Uh, you quote, you know, quotes around should is that you transition in what your role is. That's not the case in America. We don't have those sort of strict rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think as what Nancy saying and what a lot of people experience is that there's a struggle around that.
1: Right. If you have uh, comments for us today or you, if, if you've heard anything you want more information on or you want to comment on, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.com. Uh, or org slash Noon Edition.
0: We haven't talked much about um, same-sex uh, situations. I'm looking at the results from your report, and it says gay marriage uh, progress report. 65% of singles approve of same-sex marriage, 61% of men, and 69% of women. But 58% of gay men and 56% of lesbians say they're uncertain or do not want to get married at all. So how does that compare to, to rates of... Um, uh, not gay people wanting to get married. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, We're seeing a lot of uh, changing attitudes about marriage uh, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. today. And what we're seeing in, in our study and a lot of other studies is that people are more concerned with having a relationship partner that they care about and that they can feel attracted to and have a life with. So demographers are interested in how we're seeing increasing rates of people cohabiting. So people are living with their partners, but not necessarily Legally getting married, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because the question is what is the what is the and we have, we're having so many uh, national conversations about the meaning of marriage, mm-hmm. um, and the but the presumption is often about how it's changing, but it's also changing among heterosexual couples. A lot of people are saying, well, what's what? what why are there other ways to be together? And what am I looking for in a relationship? And maybe the marital union um, isn't it. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of attitudes about this are changing.
3: Yeah, and I, I think in a in recent study we completed you, – you know, I think part of the problem is if you talk about same-sex relationships, right – if you think about men, um, it really has to do probably more with gender than it does sexual orientation. We make assumptions that men just sort of lack the capacity to love over the course of the lifespan. But there's increasing data in many areas that says that love really is a human capacity, and it's not driven by gender, and it's not driven by sexual orientation. Um, I can tell you that in this, this study that um, we just completed, we, like I said, we, said, we found that 91 percent of over 25,000 men said they felt matched In their sexual experience, meaning that they felt like they loved the other person just as much as the other person loved them. Um, we found that men um, aged 30 to 39 um, experienced um, what they called more being in love than people who were a little older, um, and then younger people saying they're unsure. So it, it is a little counterintuitive to we think of love only kind of grows over time. It's these data suggest it may have a peak uh, in some relationships, yeah. um, and we actually know that men also report in sex with each other that if they are in love, they often rate the sexual experience as much more satisfying much more Mm -hmm. pleasurable and having greater contributions to their romantic relationships. I will tell you where we don't know much about same-sex love um, is actually about same-sex women in relationships. There have only been a few studies um, about that topic. Um, It's sort of an underexplored area. And I think we probably would make a lot of assumptions that same-sex couples who are women would look much differently than same-sex male couples or male-female couples. Um, But I'm not sure we know enough about that really to, to say much about it.
0: Why is why isn't being that not being studied as Aggressively,
3: well, you know, I my I have a lot of opinions about it. I think that it's part of just a sexist society. You know, women are often left out of many of these equations, and when you put two women together, it's even compounded. There, Um, there are not the same social structures. Uh, Even if you look at sort of the gay, lesbian, bisexual community, there are not the same outlets and structures for women that there are for men. Um, Some of that might be tied to economics. Some of it might be tied to other factors, Um, and as a result, uh, lesbian and same women women uh, same gender couples are a little harder to identify they're a little hard to track down I think they're a little more skeptical about some of this work and they've mm-hmm. that's been a community that's sort of done for itself um, and so we've been we you know our team has been testing out some unique methodologies of how to find those women and we're being successful at doing it but within the LGBT community the social structures are quite separate quite defined um, they men and women are really kept separate by many of these systems it's almost back it's almost like a segregation uh, type philosophy around how men and women in those communities operate. And I I think the women are a little more private and a little less trusting um, that society is really out for their best interests.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. We have two phone calls. uh, Let let me get to these, Justin, and then we'll whatever you want to say after that. Uh, We're going to go to Jerry first. Jerry?
4: Uh, Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I don't have a specific issue to address, but I just want to say I'm so happy and so pleased that we can have this sort of discussion on the air these days. I know we have a long way to go, but we have come a long way to be able to do what you're doing today. All right. And finally, we really love you guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Happy Valentine's Day. We yeah.
0: love you too, Jerry. Yeah, Thank you for calling.
1: We appreciate it.
0: We love an attaboy. All
1: right. Thanks. Thank All right. We ha we have a second caller uh who doesn't want to be identified, so we're gonna we're gonna let her on the air anyway. Go ahead.
4: Um yes, I'd like to make a comment about love with older people. That is, I happen to be eighty two. And I think one of the things that has gotten in the way of my having a a really complete relationship, I'm talking about love and sex, with an older man is and women, too, is over-medication by doctors. And it really can inhibit a a potentially wonderful relationship. Thank you very much.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that that call. Can Michael can you address that?
3: Yeah, I think she's absolutely right. I think it goes back to our point. You know, this this is almost a topic that is never discussed. You know, medical providers aren't necessarily tra- and I'm not picking on the medical community, but that is a class of providers almost no medical students get any real training on human sexuality in medical school. They under- they may be taught the reproductive system and hormone uh, systems, but they don't really talk about sex openly. <laughs> and the lack of data about aging Americans and the lack of um, Um, Studies that have even, you know, gone into that area have left us really ignorant, I think, as a society about it. And I think often um, it's not, you know, older people aren't comfortable asking and medical providers don't ask. And so the topic never goes. And what we do know is that the range of medications are certainly understood for many side effects and many complications. But often the sexual side effects are those that aren't considered or discussed or, or or. Put into the formula when one's being prescribed.
2: Yeah. yeah, and I think we can sometimes take for granted on the Indiana University campus with the Kinsey Institute, the Center for Sexual Health Promotion, Department of Gender Studies. We're, we're a powerhouse of studying sex, gender, and reproduction uh, internationally, mm. um, given all of these different resources, given all the different disciplines we're working in. So we, uh, but that's, those aren't, those global conversations really uh, need to keep pushing, and I think Michael's point is really important. Yeah,
3: and back to your, first, the other caller's comment, I'm really glad he made the comment he had. You know, know, people um, – we've come a long way as a society, but we still have a really long way to go about sexuality. But, you know, it is simply the fact that humans are innately curious about uh, what their neighbors are doing and what other people are doing, how they compare to others in terms of their sexual behavior. Um, and the the there's an absolute necessity for a continuing study of sexual behavior, not simply for its political implications and its health-related implications and its clinical implications, but simply because uh, it's the one common denominator, it's the one behavior that without which none of us would exist, um, and it, uh, we must remain resolute in talking about these topics openly and having good conversations and in supporting science that allows us to have these conversations, um, because people are so curious, and otherwise we, we sort of wallow in myth
1: and misconception and just find ourselves in trouble. Yeah. Alright, we have another phone call. And uh, Charlie from Bloomington is on the line. Charlie?
2: Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I appreciate your show. And uh, uh, You know, in Bloomington, we have a lot of music and a lot of alcohol,
4: and, uh, and obviously they affect uh, some sexual activity, but has there been any studies about
2: how music or alcohol affect uh, humans and their, their love relationships? There's um, – I, I don't know about music. That's a great question. <laughs> Michael and I are going to run back and plan a new study. <laughs> um, but I, uh, but uh, certainly alcohol. And there's some evidence that a little bit of alcohol um, for both men and women can actually have a positive impact on arousal and sexual interest. But too much, uh, whatever too much, that category, I'll, I'll, I'll leave undefined for a moment. Um, uh, too much can actually have negative impacts on sexual function and arousal, partly because you um, – y- with loss of uh, inhibition, uh, you also have other functions that become like less fine-tuned. Depressed, yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I think then you also, you know, you get to that line where, you know, is, is sex or
1: is it violence sometimes when there's too much alcohol? I think that's – on a college campus, I think we Mm. have to separate those two things. Absolutely. We find people finding themselves in
3: situations that they otherwise would not have gotten into, that they go into situations with the best intentions around using a condom or other forms of protection. Those go out the window. So alcohol is really tricky both physiologically and behaviorally, but it most importantly, I think, for this community – is a significant issue in terms of people finding themselves in situations that have outcomes that they never wanted to have around violence or abuse or things of that nature. So it, it's something that needs to be uh, a continued emphasis for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And it raises um, you know in the 70s uh, Mary Koss suggested that one in four women uh, would experience sexual assault by the time they were sort of done with college. Mm-hmm. And uh, people laughed. They said no, it can't really be that high. And you know for 30 years we're finding those numbers are the same. They're not changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot going on, and a lot of the studies are pointing to um, heavy alcohol use. Particularly with college students, it tends to be binge drinking. So it's not just the uh, alcohol use that you tend to see in older, in older adults, but you see this sort of heavy, episodic drinking mm-hmm. a few nights of the week. And that's um, it's a huge It has huge consequences, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: All right. We have about three minutes to go. We have a phone call from Leslie. Leslie?
4: Hi. Um, am I on the
1: air? Yes. Yes.
4: Yeah. I just wanted to contribute to this conversation. I'm really thrilled that you're having it, because I think it's an injustice to women that, uh, and it normal, normally comes from men, that they think that when a woman has gone through the loss of her period, that she's no longer um, of, interested or attractive or, or attracted. And that's not true at all for myself. My sexual uh desires and um fulfillment has never diminished. I have a friend who's sixty four she is um married and she said that she, it's better for her now than ever and she was always extremely sexually active with her uh, husband and um uh, my sister in law is fourteen years older and she told me it just gets better it doesn't get worse not to worry about getting older and um I'm really thrilled that you have addressed this because I really feel that American men need to hear this. American men who are interested in women. I understand there's a lot of men that are interested in men and God bless them too. But women do not lose their vibrancy. They, especially if they know how to take care of themselves and stay healthy. I suppose the health of any individual is what diminishes or increases their sexual urges.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great so, point. Yeah.
1: Well.
4: Thank you so much for this program. My God. Many <laughs> oh, <thank If> <laughs> blessings to all of you because this is something that should be aired all over the country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, Leslie. Thanks a lot for the call.
0: Join us next week when we also talk about (laughs) 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 love and sex. All
1: right. We we have less than a minute to go, so I just want to give our our guests, uh, Justin and Michael, one, one more chance at any point that you want to
2: reiterate or make. This just going to be really quick. I want to, uh, when we talk about same-sex relationships and same-sex love, I just want to make the point that if we look at the psychological, neurobiological data, um, it doesn't really matter what you love uh, who you're attracted to, whether it be men or women and you yourself are men or women. Those systems are exactly the same. The biological evidence all points to... The same thing. There's a lot of diversity, and some of us like vanilla, some of us like chocolate, some of us like the swirl ice cream in the middle. But, mm-hmm. but the mechanisms are all the same. I just wanted to get that okay, point. Okay, Michael, ten seconds. Yeah, just thanks for having us
3: on, and uh, you know we're lucky to live in a place like Bloomington and be at a campus that uh, finds the study of sexuality to be an important thing for the rest of society, and. Uh, and uh, let us know if we can ever answer any questions. You can all find both of us on the web. All right. All right. Thank, thank you. you all for joining Happy our Valentine. conversation
1: today on sexuality, but it was mainly on love. <laughs> so thank you very much for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Claire McInerney, and engineer Mike Pashcash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you.